You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Good afternoon, uh, brothers and sisters and friends. Well, it's probably a bit of an unusual subject, you're thinking. Um, it doesn't really sound like the sort of subject we normally talk about when we're preaching the gospel. So I hope that if it does sound a little bit unusual to you, it sparks your interest uh, and you'll find it worthwhile listening. There's an outline of what we're going to do this afternoon. Really, the talk breaks down into three distinct parts. First of all, we're going to look at the background to this subject in the Old Testament, in particular um, in one chapter in the book of Daniel. We're then going to carry that forward into the New Testament and see uh, a parallel prophecy in the book of Revelation, uh, and particularly that chapter 17 that we've read a portion of a few moments ago. And then the third part of our talk, having established the scriptural background of the subject, we're going to try and answer the question, well, is there really any evidence um, of the answer to the question that's posed in our title? Is there really any evidence in the world in which we live that uh, an EU army, an EU military force is uh, planned and under development? As I said, it is an unusual topic. And you might be saying, is this really, really matter to us? Is such a thing as a, a, an EU army predicted in the Bible? If it is, does it really matter? Isn't it just a matter of contemporary politics? What, what does it have to do with the Bible? What does it have to do with our salvation? What does it have to do with God? Well. I think the answer to both those questions is actually yes, an EU army is predicted and will produce the evidence for that in due course. But if an EU army, an EU military force is shown to be under development, and if it is foretold in the Bible, then that proves to us that the Bible is really up to date, that it's talking to us about contemporary events. It's not something we should treat lightly or push on one side and ignore. We should treat it very seriously. And these are current events. These are things that are happening around us. Um, and what we want to try and encourage you to do is to look at current events from a biblical perspective. Look at them through the Bible lens, as it were, and see that they're not just a matter of contemporary politics. They are matters of life and death. They are evidence that God is moving amongst the nations and fulfilling his purpose. So, let's start in the Old Testament, and I'd like you to go, come with me please to Daniel chapter 7. We're not going to go through this chapter in detail, that's uh, a different subject uh, on, it, on its own. But there on the screen is a summary of both Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 2. 
uh, those of you familiar with Bible prophecy will know that really these are parallel, um, parallel chapters. Daniel chapter 2 um, records the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had uh, of that great image um, which Daniel interpreted to him, um, the interpretation given to him of course by the God of heaven, showing that the different parts of that image represented different kingdoms of the world, starting with Babylon, working through Medo-Persia, uh, Greece, Rome, and eventually to the last days when the Lord Jesus Christ, the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, will return and establish the kingdom of God. Now that was Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And really, that's his view of himself. He probably thought of himself, really, as the, as the whole image. Um, a matter of human pride and arrogance. That's man's view of the kingdom of men. But only chapter 7, which is parallel, as that um, screen shows, gives us God's perspective on the same kingdoms of men. Not as a magnificent image made of these various precious metals, but as a series of wild beasts. God's view. That's how God views the kingdoms of men. Really untamed, unruly beasts that need to be tamed and taught God's ways. First, there's the lion, which represented Babylon. Then, the Medo-Persian Empire represented by the bear. Thirdly, the Grecian Empire represented by the leopard. And fourthly, the uh, beast that was great and terrible, so great and terrible that it didn't have a parallel in the natural world, and that represented Rome. We're not concerned with the, the, the last bit of, of the, uh, the, part, the, the uh, pictures in, in Daniel chapter 7. Just want to focus on those four um, beasts for the moment. Just, just look at the verses very quickly. Verse 4. First beast was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And Daniel says, I beheld till the wings that I were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. That represented the kingdom of Babylon. It was followed by the bear. Verse 5. Another, behold, another beast, a second match with a bear, it raised up itself on one side, had three ribs in the mouth between the teeth of it. And they said, Thus unto it arise and devour much flesh. Thirdly, the leopard in verse 6. A leopard which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl, the beast also had four heads and dominion that was given to it. That was the Greek Empire founded by Alexander the Great. And then the fourth beast, you see how it's described there, particularly in verse 7. Daniel says, I saw a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it and was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Notice it had iron teeth, and the iron provides a link back to the iron legs of the image of Daniel chapter 2, which represented Rome. So this, this fourth beast, great and terrible, unlike anything in the world of nature, represented the Roman Empire. Verse 18, the conclusion of the outworking of this vision, the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. 
In other words, the, the conclusion of the vision was that these various kingdoms of men were going to be overthrown and replaced by a kingdom that would not be destroyed, the kingdom of God, which will be on this earth and which will last forever. I just want to pick up one or two other details in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, yes, chapter 7, verse 11. Daniel says, having seen this vision, I beheld then, because of the voice of the great word which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So that, that fourth beast in particular, the one that was great and terrible, which represented Rome, Daniel says it, it, in the vision he saw it killed and destroyed and burned, which of course ties up with what we read in verse 18, it will be replaced by a kingdom, kingdom of God which will last forever and ever. That kingdom ruled over by God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and Jesus is foretold in verses 13 and 14. Daniel goes on, I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man. And there's a link with the Lord Jesus Christ, because that, that of course is one of his titles in the New Testament. One like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So, the outcome of the fulfilment of this prophecy is the establishment of the kingdom of God ruled over by the Lord Jesus Christ when that, particularly that fourth beast is destroyed. Now Daniel, perhaps not surprisingly, wanted to, to know more about what this, this vision meant. I suspect we'd have been in exactly the same situation if we'd been given that vision. We'd been so intrigued, uh, perhaps astounded and, and frightened by some of the things in the vision, we want to know more. Verse 19, Daniel says, Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron, his nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet. He wanted in particular to know more about the fourth beast, that, that Roman beast that was dreadful and terrible. You notice it's described there as being diverse. That word actually occurs four times. Um, in Daniel chapter 7 in describing this fourth beast. Um, and it, this particular section of, of Daniel was originally written in the Aramaic language, which is close to Hebrew, but not exactly the same. The Aramaic word apparently is the word Shena. Uh, the Hebrew word is, is very close to it, Shana. Uh, and it means to change, to alter, or to transform. So, so in other words, what Daniel is saying about this fourth beast this Roman beast, is that it, it would change. It would transform itself over time. Unlike any animal in nature, so terrible was it, but it would change over the course of history. Now just embed that thought in your mind because it's important. This fourth beast was diverse, it was changing. Let's go now to the book of Revelation. Just notice, in general, uh, first of all, that the visions of the book of Revelation were given to the Apostle John 
at the end of the first century AD. Uh, generally recognised, I think, uh, the book was written in AD 96 or thereabouts. At the time when that fourth Roman beast was ruling over the, uh, the civilised world, the Mediterranean world in particular, uh, that, uh, in, that impacted on the land and nation of Israel. So, you see straight away the, the connection between the fourth beast of Daniel 7 and the visions of Revelation. The Roman beast was in power at this time. In the book of Revelation, there are a whole series of wild beasts that occur in these visions. Um, there's actually two different Greek words, both translated beast in the uh, King James Version of, of Revelation. Um, the word that relates to these wild animals in the visions is, is the, word, the Greek word therion. Uh, and that literally means a wild beast. So you see the connection with that fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7. And these different beasts in the book of Revelation, and remember the revisions were given at the time when Rome was in power, the Roman Empire uh, was supreme at this time. The, these different beasts in the visions of Revelation represent different phases of Rome and Rome's power over history, over two millennia, starting with the days of uh, the Apostle John when he received these visions from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of detail on the next slide. Please please don't worry about all the detail. I'm not going to uh, go through it all. Um, but just, just to highlight um, the fact that in Revelation there are these different beasts and they are different phases of Rome. In that, the left-hand column uh, there, we've got the, the different references to, the, to these beasts, and I've highlighted in red uh, the description of each one. They're different phases of Roman power. The, the great red dragon of chapter 12, the pagan Roman Empire, which was supreme uh, in the first century when, when the book of Revelation was written. In chapter 13, we have, first of all, a beast that rises up out of the sea. Uh, and this has moved on to medieval times. This is the, the Catholic papal imperial system of Rome uh, that, that persecuted the saints um, and uh, ruled over uh, much of Europe uh, and the Middle East. That's parallel with uh, another beast that came up out of the earth, the earth beast, still in chapter 13, um, which we believe represents the Holy Roman Empire came into existence in the year 800 um, and lasted um, until the 19th century. That same chapter also has an image to the beast uh, representing the papal states. Uh, the, the popes had their own territory uh, over much of Italy um, uh, for much of the Middle Ages. And then in chapter 17 that we read part of by way of introduction, we come across the final phase of this fourth Roman beast. Um, and it's called the Scarlet Coloured Beast in chapter 17. Uh, and that, we believe, represents the European Union, the final phase of Roman political power uh, foretold so many centuries ago uh, and that we now see in existence around us. Um, it's slightly, debate, slightly debatable as to exactly uh, what year marks the starting point um, of the development of this beast. Um, I've suggested there on the slide 1992, which was the date of the Maastricht Treaty, which 
brought into being the European Union as we know it. It had various different names before that, uh, such as the common market, but from 1992 onwards, uh, it was known, is known as the European Union. So, so there's the, the diverse beasts, the changing beasts of um, Revelation, uh, linking back to Daniel chapter 7. So Daniel, uh, Revelation 17 and verse 8. John's told, The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the, written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And verse 11, the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. What I want to emphasize from those verses is that this last phase of the beast is related to something that's existed previously, the, the diverse changing beast, beginning with Imperial Rome, going through the various phases. This last phase goes into perdition. And we're told that twice in verse 8 and in verse 11. In other words, the prophecy is quite definite. This is the last stage. This is the end of the beast. It's going to be destroyed, just as Daniel 7 has already told us. It's going to go into perdition. And notice also what we're told in the latter part of verse 8, that those people whose names are not written in the book of life, those who are not true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, will wonder when they see this beast that's going to go into perdition. In other words, there's an implicit warning warning to us to be read to be ready to be true disciples, that we're not taken by surprise when these prophecies are fulfilled. Now go down to verse 12 in chapter 17. Remember this, this beast has uh, seven heads and ten horns. Verse 12, And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. So these ten horned kings give up their power to the beast. Now that fits exactly with the political constitution of the European Union. If you, a country joins the, the European Union, the, the principle which in French is called acquis communautaire kicks in. In other words, you give up um, your independence to the European Union, you have to adopt European Union laws um, and they take supremacy over your own and, and you, you acquire the, the legal status, the, le the laws of the community of the Union. And of course, uh, this country is uh, rather painfully found out how true that is, uh, currently trying to dis disentangle itself from uh, the, the legal morass of the European Union. You, you never intended to leave, actually. Um, the whole point is you join and, and you join and you're there. Um, to, to leave was never part of the plan uh, and it was always intended to be made difficult uh, as, it did, as indeed it is proving to be. So ten horned kings who give up their power 
fits with, with, with the constitution of uh, the European Union uh, as we understand it. And we ask the question, well, well, is 10 a symbolic number? Or is it a representative number of perhaps a greater number of, of uh, kings, rulers, states that will uh, be members of the European Union? After all, there are already 27 members, even without Britain, uh, and there are a number of others at uh, various stages um, of uh, applying to join. Well, let's just say right at the outset, I think that, that number 10 is literal, uh, and we could, we could trace that back into the Old Testament, in particular to Daniel chapter 7. We haven't time to go into that uh, in detail now, but the historical precedent in Daniel 7 is literally 10, and so we suggest that there will be literally 10. Which begs the question, well, how do we get from the 27 plus to 10 um, in the future? I came across this quotation recently from a, a book published by, uh, uh, written by a professor of history at Cambridge, uh, 2016, uh, Peter Wilson. Uh, the, the title of the book, The Holy Roman Empire, A Thousand Years of Europe's History. But on the very first page, he says this. In addition to present-day Germany, it, meaning the Holy Roman Empire, included all or part of ten modern countries. And he lists them. Austria, Belgium, the Czech Republic, Denmark, France, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Poland and Switzerland. Well, possibly there we've been given an indication of who these ten will end up being. It's only a suggestion, we can't be dogmatic about it, but I think it's highly likely that it'll be somewhere along these lines. Germany, Austria, Belgium, the Czech Republic, Denmark, France, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and Poland. Not Switzerland. Switzerland was never part of the whole Roman Empire and is not a member of the European Union. So, Peter Wilson there lists um, Germany plus 10 others, Take Switzerland out, and you're left with 10. Um, first one there being Germany. Verse 14. These, these 10 old kings that have given up their power to the beast, shall make war with the Lamb. So, the beast is the European Union, we suggest. These, these 10. Uh, states that will be the, the final core of the European Union will give up their power to the beast and when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to earth they'll make war with him they'll make war with the Lamb look how the verse goes on and the Lamb shall overcome them for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful so if this scarlet-coloured beast, which represents the, U the European Union, along with these final ten-horned kings, is to make war with the Lamb, it must be a military power. How else can it make war? It must have a military capability. So, there we suggest it is essentially the answer to the question we asked in our title. Yes, the Bible does foretell that the European Union will develop an army or a military power because it's going to make war with the Lamb of God. Of course, as that verse goes on to say, it will be a futile war because the Lamb, together with the 
resurrected and immortalized disciples of all ages will overcome that beast system. Just, just very quickly, let's, let's summarize what has to take place before the events of verse 14 take place. The Lord Jesus Christ has to return to the earth, at which point he'll raise the dead and the judgment will take place to separate the, those who are approved and those who are rejected. There will be an invasion of the land of Israel led by a nation called in, in prophetic scriptures in Ezekiel Gog, which we can identify as Russia, along with her allies, both in Eastern and Western Europe. Uh, and that, that really will be the final phase of the image of Daniel chapter 2, the, the image standing up on its feet, ready to be uh, struck on its feet by the stone power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Gog will be defeated, um, and as a result of that, there will then be this war of Revelation 17 verse 14, the papacy, along with the European Union. The woman riding this scarlet-coloured beast will make war with the Lamb, papacy in alliance with the European Union. Um, and we know that what the result will be because Revelation 17 makes that quite clear. I just want to link that, before we look at some current events, with Psalm 2. Just, just fix in our minds what Revelation 17 verse 14 has been telling us. The scarlet coloured beast and the, the woman that rides her and the ten horned kings will make war with the Lamb. At that point, the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be back in the earth as God's appointed king in Jerusalem. Psalm 2 verse 6 says, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion, and he will demand that the nations submit to his king. The king of kings, as Brother Dan referred to him in his prayer. But of course, they won't submit readily, they'll make war. Verses 2 and 3 of the psalm put it like this, The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Many of the nations will not be prepared to submit to the King of Kings. They'll make war with the Lamb. But the Almighty God will laugh. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The futility of man making war on his only begotten and all-powerful Son. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. The Lamb will overcome them. And those that are with him are called and chosen faithful disciples of all generations. So, we've established some principles from Scripture. We've attempted to answer from Scripture the question, is an EU army foretold in the Bible? And the answer to that we believe is yes, based ultimately on verse 14 of Revelation chapter 17. We now ask the question, well, is there any contemporary evidence for this? Fine to talk it in theoretical terms, if you like, from the Bible, but is there any contemporary evidence of, of this really happening? Well, just think briefly about the Holy Roman Empire. 
it was one of the phases of Daniel's diverse fourth Roman beast. And it was the phase that followed and ran parallel, as we said there, with Catholic Imperial Rome. I've got a quote there from another book on the Holy Roman Empire, but written in the 19th century. It says, The Holy Roman Church and the Holy Roman Empire are one and the same thing in two aspects. And Catholicism, the principle of the universal Christian society, is also Romanism. That is, it rests upon Rome as the origin and type of its universality. As divine and eternal, its head is the Pope, to whom souls have been entrusted. As human and temporal, the Emperor commissioned to rule men's bodies and acts. So, the whole Roman Empire is the political power, if you like, which is designed to rule over uh, human society. But you might say, well, what, where does that fit in with the European Union? Well, the European Union sees itself as the whole Roman Empire reborn. That's how it presents itself. Um, that map on the left there shows the, the territory of the whole Roman Empire of the Middle Ages. The right of the screen is the uh, front cover of, of a uh, copy of uh, academic journal called History Today, um, which was devoted to the, the Holy Roman Empire. And it calls it the First European Union. And there's the picture of uh, the statue of Charlemagne, Charles the Great, the first uh, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, and around his head, the 12 stars, the symbol of the European Union. So you see how the two things are linked together by contemporaries. And that's how the European Union presents itself. Uh, skip over that side because I want to focus on this one, the Charlemagne Prize. It's a prize named after the first emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Charlemagne, and it's awarded uh, by the, the city of Aachen, um, which is the city in Germany where Charlemagne is buried, and it's awarded each year uh, to those who, who have, uh, as they put it, done work in the service of European unification. And it's been awarded every year since 1950. And just put the bottom there um, some of the, the names of people who've received the prize. It's a bit of a rogues gallery, really. Um, Jean Monnet, Robert Schumann, two of the early founders of the European Union, Edward Heath, Tony Blair, Pope John Paul II, Jean Claude Juncker, Donald Tusk, and Pope Francis. It's the last one there in 2016. All recipients of the Charlemagne Prize, because in the modern world they've been progressing, uh, as men see it, uh, the process of European unification. So let's go to the beginnings of the EU developing a military force. We're going back just over 20 years to the end of the, the last century, 1999 to 2000. When the process began with the establishment of what was called the Rapid Reaction Force, the RRF to use its initials. And it was the brainchild of Jean Prodin, who was the president at the time of the European Commission, who we're told also called for the powers of Strasbourg and Brussels to be enhanced and for the European Union to develop its own defence capability. It's a quotation from the Telegraph in 1999. 
the time, John Major, the, the British Prime Minister, or the ex-Prime Minister uh, by then, commented, I, am, uh, I remain very uneasy about all this. The fear that lingers is that the Rapid Reaction Force is not the end of ambitions for defence capabilities beyond NATO, but the beginning. If so, this is not only fanciful, it is dangerous. So he could see in those very early beginnings that this was intended to be the foundation of something more, and he regarded it as dangerous. Move on a decade to 2011-12. The European Union now has something called the European Defence Agency, which operates within the parameters of what it calls the Common Security Defence Policy, CSDP. And from that time onwards, the, this European Defence Agency sets policies which were increasingly influencing the, the development of the militaries in individual nation states within the European Union. At the time, um, Catherine Ashton, who was a British uh, person, uh, but was the EU High Representative, said in a speech to the EDA conference in 2012, my objective today is to encourage you in your work to develop the military capabilities that will ensure CSDP remains an effective component in the European Union's response. If Europe is to be a credible player in the world, it requires more than just soft power. In other words, it requires hard military power capable of intervening anywhere in the world where it's considered to be necessary. Jump on another decade to nearly our own times, to last year, 2021. Told now that the European Union is seeking to develop uh, a military, its rapid response force. Um, the ironic headline there from Reuters says, two decades after the first try. The European Union developments don't move at any great speed, uh, they move at a rather glacial speed. Uh, but the, the, uh, the intention is nevertheless uh, fairly consistent. Uh, and I put there some extracts from um, this Reuters article uh, on the, the development of European military force um, in May of last year. And they say that 14 European Union countries, including Germany and France, have proposed a rapid military response force that could intervene early in international crises. The countries say the EU should create a brigade of 5,000 soldiers, possibly with ships and aircraft, to help democratic foreign governments needing urgent help. The 14 countries are, and they're listed there on that, that penultimate bullet point, and I've highlighted in red the ones that are also in that list of 10 that we came across a little earlier. Um, so you can see how there's a certain amount of consistency uh, developing. And the last point there is interesting as well. The, from this year, that's from 2021, the bloc has a joint budget to develop weaponry together and is drawing up a military doctrine for 2022. So you can see the consistency in developments over the years and they're moving forward, uh, albeit slowly. But actually, that, that speed does seem to be picking up somewhat because they're now putting in place uh, a plan that covers the next six years, from 2021 to 2027, uh, as set out in the European Defence Agency paper um, from May last year. Um, I've just highlighted uh, some points there. The, uh, something called the Permanent Structured Cooperation, or PESCO, 
launched in, in 2017. It has as many as 47 collaborative projects. Um, and there's now something called the European Defence Fund, um, which was launched in 2017 and is now included in EU budgets right through to 2027. So you can see, as I say, how the pace is picking up uh, and these developments are quite consistent. Just 12 months ago, in August last year, you might remember that uh, all of a sudden the uh, United States decided to pull its military forces after, out of Afghanistan after being there for about 20 years. Uh, and chaos ensued, um, plus uh, a lot of um, unhappiness amongst United States allies at this uh, precipitous decision taken by President Biden. Um, this is an extract from a magazine called France 24. European dismay over President Joe Biden's precipitous withdrawal of US troops from Afghanistan has renewed calls for an EU military force. While proponents of strategic autonomy say the fall, the fall of Kabul should serve as a wake-up call, others do not see it as an existential threat and are content to remain as junior partners to US military might. So there's, there's two ways of thinking uh, going on, but there's certainly those who are pushing for further EU military development. Um, and um, Josep Borrell, who is the uh, EU foreign affairs representative, um, said that there is a need for more European defence. The need for more European defence has never been as much evident as today after events in Afghanistan. Uh, and he re-emphasises the need for this rapid reaction force of 5,000 soldiers. It's interesting that, that, that what, quite out of the blue, an event like the, the withdrawal of US troops from, from Afghanistan suddenly triggers um, the, the developments to be speeded up. And Ursula von der Leyen, uh, the, the uh, European Commission President, uh, took up the same message uh, in the autumn of last year into January uh, this year. She said it was uh, time to take Europe to the next level and act independently of NATO. And she's urged the 27 member states to use long dormant powers to put EU boots on the ground and call for the creation of a defence union. And uh, Emmanuel Macron, President of France, has joined in uh, and also called for an EU defence, a stronger EU defence strategy at the time when, the, during the first six months of this year, when France took over the, the leadership um, of the bloc. Let's go back slightly to November last year. This, I think, is a potentially very significant um, development. EU could deploy new military force without asking permission of all member states. In other words, the EU could decide on its own, without consulting all the independent states, whether they're 10 or 27, to put boots on the ground to intervene wherever they, they feel it necessary. Um, and that, that's another example of power being taken away from the individual nation states and garnered by the central institution. So, Come back to our basic question, is there going to be a European military force after all, and is it foretold in the Bible? Well, February this year, as we know, Vladimir Putin got Russian forces to invade Ukraine. Once again, suddenly, 
events overtake um, whatever politicians would like to do. Putin's aggression has achieved the seemingly impossible and turned the EU into a military power. It was a comment uh, by one writer in the Telegraph in March 22, really answering our question for us. Putin's aggression has achieved the seemingly impossible and turned the EU into a military power. Macron has said the European Union must move towards the creation of an EU army. French President said EU leaders would meet to discuss plans to pool military resources on March the 10th at a summit in Versailles. That's only uh, four, four or five months ago. So you see how up to date these things are, fulfilling Bible prophecy of 2,000 years ago. Just add a note of caution there, because we don't really know quite how the war in Ukraine is going to pan out. Um, I think we could, we could uh, make a good case for saying how we believe it will pan out based on Bible prophecy, but in the short term, uh, it's not necessarily clear. Invasion of Ukraine, and what I've called their gas blackmail, and you know what we mean by that, um, much of Europe, Germany in particular, is highly dependent on Russian gas. Uh, and so Putin has, has got Western Europe over a barrel, really, uh, over, almost literally, um, over, over gas. Um, invasion of Ukraine and gas blackmail may divide and fragment the EU. Oh yes, the EU's up in arms about this invasion. But when they, the lights go out in the winter and the heating won't come on, maybe some of those countries will um, give way to some of Putin's demands. Maybe the EU will fragment. Maybe some of those countries will, in effect, become Russia's puppets. And so what we could end up with is an EU military force directed by Russia. It's quite conceivable to see that sort of uh, conclusion to these events. Though, of course, we can't be dogmatic about it. So, conclusions. First, that Bible prophecy is precise, it's accurate, and it's reliable. We can put our trust in it. We should put our trust in it. Predicted development of an EU army or military force is taking shape. The evidence is there for us if we look for it. We don't have to invent it, imagine it. It's happening. The ultimate fulfilment of these developments may be some way ahead. It may be only undertaken by a smaller group, possibly of 10, rather than the existing 27 member states. But before that force is complete and ready, at any time, the Lord Jesus Christ will return to the earth to judge the living and the dead and to establish the kingdom of God. Which means that we need to be sure where we stand. We need to watch and be ready understand Bible prophecy, believe it, and put our lives in order, in order that, to use the language of Revelation 17, we might be included among those who are called and chosen and faithful when the Lord Jesus Christ returns.
Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.